netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Thanks for joining us for this FX Podcast. The FX Podcast is the one where we talk with leading visual effects artists all over the world. And today we're going to focus on Allura uh, and their Emmy nomination for Game of Thrones Battle of the Bastards. And I'm joined by Mike Seymour. Hey, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Great time we had at uh, SIDGRAPH. And uh, thanks for all your help on that, Jeff. And uh, all that coverage, of course, up on the site. But Emmy's looking forward. Um, and yes, I'm, I'm really happy to have this interview today uh, with the guys at Allura, mainly because they helped kill bloody Ramsay, bloody Bolton, the bastard, in the Battle of the Bastards in Game of Thrones, uh, obviously season six episode, uh, sorry, yeah, season six, episode nine. Um, this is the one that uh, obviously lit up the internet. Um, people described it as, you know, magnificent and just cinematic and uh, an epic kind of masterpiece. The The... I just want to set this up, though, for everyone that's listening, Jeff, because um, there's a lot of people who work on this, and just like the show, the visual effects are handled by a bunch of companies. So just to be clear, and we'll make the point in the podcast, but uh, Allura handled, as I say, the the sort of the huge battle uh, of Winterfeld and uh, not the dragon stuff, which was handled by some of the other great visual effects companies on the team. But this was um, nominated, as you say, for an Emmy in visual effects, which is just, you know, terrific. And it's great to see this level of work. I mean, episodic television these days, the effects are just It's insane. It's, it's insane so the good. amount of work. That, I mean, this is huge, massive, not to be redundant. <laughs> Does use massive, yes. But, um, you know, these horses are just, the, the clip that they posted, the making of is just spectacular. I mean, it just shows the level of... Uh, the amount of work that's being done, and it just and you know it's finding an audience as we discussed on oh, the podcast. Yeah. Like seven or eight million people tuned in when it went uh, aired here in the in the US. Um, yeah, and you know I'm so glad. I mean, look, we've got all of the Emmy noms up, obviously on uh, FX Guide, and you know some of them uh, we've covered in separate things. Uh, for mm-hmm. example, The Man in High Castle. We did a whole thing with uh, Wired on and stuff, and we've covered Game of Thrones, uh, like you know, almost for the last three or four seasons. We've done the visual effects in that, so mm-hmm. we're, we're happy to be. Uh, iterating on that again, but uh, instead of just covering everything, we're just going to drill down on this uh, this one section, which you know, as you know, if you've seen the episode, spoilers, <laughs> um, is really sort of like about half the ep. There's the whole kind of thing that's happening um, with the dragons, and then we're cutting, as they always do, to the other problem, which is the uh, problem of poor Jon Snow looking <laughs> like he's about to be killed again. <laughs> um, except, uh, of course, as I say, spoilers, um, they uh, saved at the last minute, but. Um, the, the amount of problems that you have to solve in a thing like this, but I think it's really gratifying as we'll hear from the team at Allura in a moment. We're speaking to both Glenn, the visual supervisor, and uh, Inika, the producer. What's really satisfying is to hear them talk about how well the production filmed things, how well they provided things, how well things were lined out and done. Like, you know, we often hear people off, off mic maybe bitching and complaining, but these guys weren't saying it for you know, publicity reasons. They really had a good time because the Game of Thrones team is just a very well-oiled machine at one of the most premier kind of TV apps going these days. I, I, I particularly did chuckle at the um, the one where the giant 
um, punches the horse as he goes by. I call it the Alex Karras moment from Blazing Saddles. It's like a little, little tribute there, I think. I don't know. Yeah, well, as you'll hear in this interview coming up, I mean, incorporating people at different scales introduced oh. enormous amounts of problems, but the yeah. Game of Thrones production team um, really, really have that down pat. Yeah, there was now, a lot of stuff in the making of that you could see stanchions and stuff really thought out. Really well thought out, yeah. And I mean, look, there were a lot of extras used. Um, if you were to look it up on Wikipedia or somewhere, you may hear numbers like 500 extras or bigger numbers than the numbers that we're going to quote in this. The reason for that is, of course, in the episode, they were using extras at both of the big fights. We're talking about, obviously, now in the, in the actual uh, interview you're about to get, just about the uh, big, big fight for Winterfeld. But uh, it still had hundreds and hundreds of extras and uh, tons of crew and um, I guess 70, no, sorry, 40 horses and something like that. So it's like an astonishing amount of um, stuff. But yeah... Having said that, they had to go out to thousands. And so when that happens, you're going to have bits of artificial effects. But have a listen for how it was that Allura in Melbourne, in Australia, got to actually end up doing horses. And I've got to tell you, Jeff, it was not the way that I thought they would have got the job. Okay. Well, uh, should we... Are you going to... You're not going to no, finish that? Let's no, let's listen to Glenn and, and oh, okay. Inika. All right. Do you want to set it up? Yeah. Um, we're going to speak with... You're going to hear two voices. You're going to hear Glenn... Mellenhorst, who's the visual effects supervisor, and then it's easy to keep track of because the female voice you'll hear is Enika Majore, the VFX producer. And, and we've known these guys for years. In fact, if you did a Google search on them, you'd find Glenn and I, I think 10 years ago, were doing stuff uh, together, as in I was interviewing him, on um, Charlotte's Web. Mm, right, so, right. yeah, and a good friend of ours, uh, Peter Webb, works with them in Melbourne. And so, yeah, these are great, great uh, people. And I'm just so happy to see them being, I mean, I, you know, I like. It. I'm very happy for everybody, but it's you know, really I, nice. I make fun of the award season because it can be a little draining, and especially living in LA, it can be a little taxing. But I'm very excited when I wake up in the morning and and uh, watch the nominations and see old friends like Aladino um, and the team at DD got nominated this year yep. for some work on uh, Black Sails, I think it was. And you know, it's just fun to see the names, yeah, and the names go by. The Viking team and stuff that they, they did great work. Yeah, no, there's lots of people really. But I have to say, <laughs> if you were a betting person. Uh, you'd be putting money on uh, the Battle of the Bastards and uh, Game of Thrones Ep Nine, looking pretty good uh, for that uh, trophy because it is. I mean, it. Yeah, anyone it's, that's seen it, it's it's so dense and so well done, and yeah, I was impressed. Anyway, let's hear now, uh, and you actually hear three voices. The third one being mine, Jeff. Yes, of course. <laughs> yes. Well, let's jump into that interview now. And I'm joined now from Melbourne by uh, Inika and Glenn. How are you guys? Good, thank you. Yeah, great, thank you. So congratulations. What is it? 7.66 million in the first showing. You guys are kind of kicking it out of the park there. Oh, look, it's, as you know, it's always a group effort. So it's very nice to be part of that. But uh, we can't take all the credit, obviously. No, no, there are, there are, <laughs> there are quite a lot of people involved uh, at many levels. Um, and I should point out, uh, in terms of visual effects, there are like at least, I think, four companies of which you are one of the main contributors. That's right. Um, so talk to me about this particular sequence in terms of like how you got involved in the series in the first place. I mean, obviously one doesn't just come to this uh, cold. How did you get there? Well, we've done some work uh, on a previous, on a film called uh, A Million Ways to Die in the West. We had a small sequence. It was a Seth MacFarlane feature and there was a part where he's uh, riding on a penny farthing and hits uh, a bunch of horses stacked up at a saloon and they topple like, you know, like the classic motorbikes toppling at the... Yep at the biker bar type thing. So we did those horses for that. And I think it was that work that actually sparked interest because the, um, the Thrones guys knew that they needed someone that could, could sell photo real horses. So 
Yes, a lot of collisions and, and that sort of actual um, anatomical kind of accuracy that they're after. Now, so if we, I'm not mistaken, you got that work, the, uh, the, the, the ways to die work from TED, right? Which is hardly photorealistic, right. but, you know, I guess it's photorealistic bears. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think yeah, I think Seth just liked working with us, and 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 you know we we do have other creature work. It's it's an interesting kind of thing. We we have a lot of kind of Ted and SpongeBob type work, but then on the same you know real, we have more photo real animals, and it's just something we we like to sort of try and be flexible with. I've got to so, say, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, creature work is like for many people like a, a holy grail, right? I mean, it's the it's fun to do all sorts of work, but getting known for doing creature work is actually quite difficult. I mean, Inika, this is like something that you had as an objective to be doing this kind of creature work or it, it developed over many years, I wonder? No, no, I think, um, I think the character and creature work has been a, a, bit, of a, a bit of a speciality with the guys here from, from Glenn's Zephyr days even. Um, and I think there's always been a, a view to, to focus on that and to highlight that. But with the being in the market that we are in, we have to obviously remain flexible and, and, and take on any, any, any kind of work. But definitely the creature work and the character work is something that we've been pushing as, as you know, being a bit, a bit of a special, specialty for us. And Inika, at your sort of, in sort of generally in Allura, how many animators would consider themselves, I guess, to fall under that character or creature tag as, as sort of character animators? Um, well, during during our stint on um, SpongeBob, we were 25 animators strong, um, and I, I think all those those animators were more character based. Um, but we were obviously very invested in in hanging on to any animators that also could do the creature work, because um, obviously we keep interchanging between character creature, and we knew that um, there were some more creature style work coming up for us. We do have um, our um, lead animator, Nick Tripodi, kind of straddles both of those kind of things quite well, from the character performance stuff to the to the sort of more anatomical creature stuff. And, and our CG Sue Barbie Goodman's the same. And I think basically as the company changes between styles of animation, we generally recruit from the ground up people with those specific skill sets. Um, we have a few people that we have long-term, but a lot of the um, the animation team comes and goes and, that, and they, they are always... Um, are selected based on the work at hand. Am I wrong to think that there's a huge crossover between character and creature work, or are they actually different skill sets? Oh God, I, I think there is a crossover when when the character does have to have a have a have a natural kind of movement behaviour. Like Ted, Ted had to not be a, a CG character; he had to be a stuffed toy. So he had to he had to be a toy that had to come to life. That was very important to Seth. So there was. A subtlety of that kind of movement and the kind of a um, the movement of a, of a toy that we had to sort of keep in mind. And then we, some of our other character stuff of you know ghouls and demons or whatever, they still have to have a a, a kind of a, a reality and a, and a physicality to them. But then you've got SpongeBob, of course, which is as abstract as all get out, and that and that that does actually require quite a different skill set. I mean, obviously, the the hugely distinguishing aspect about this work that we're about to to refer to is that, you know, with the best will in the world, I'm not meant to know I'm looking at anything that's CG, whereas, of course, any character work and, and any of those fantastical creatures, there's sort of a base assumption, I'm going to guess that it's a, a CG character. Um, but here, I mean, you know, certainly when I was watching it, I was just, I have no idea how many of these are extras and how many of these, well, I guess the ones they're killing aren't real, I, I hope, but that's yeah. about it. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's um, it, uh, I've lost my way. What were we just talking about? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what else? Yeah, I, I think the thing with photoreal animals is 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 I mean they're almost it's almost a hard to sell because there's nowhere to hide. I mean everybody's seen humans and, and horses their whole lives. We've we've seen them walking around and falling and trotting and cantering, and we've seen the way their muscles work and the way their hair moves and all that sort of stuff. And and because you you have seen so much of that, and you have seen human mo. And, and, and salary and reins and all the other bull that went along with it. It's it's um there actually is is no chance of you, you can't sort of get close. You know you get to that uncanny valley thing super quick. So guys, just set this up for me. Like um, presumably, do you get handed over a cut sequence? Like what's the sort of nature of what you had to work with to start off? I, I guess you need full frame to be able to do three D tracking on the shots. That's right. We we actually um, were quite amazed by by the turnover from the Thrones uh, crew because they've done six seasons of this. I don't think I've ever seen anything more buttoned down in terms of the deliverables that they had. They had um, all their cut their, their um, normal film plates were all at uh, HD, and uh, but further to that, we had um, so many. We had terabytes of witness cams and lidar and and uh, land surveys and, you know, that sort of stuff and, and plate shot elements and just, I've never seen anything like it. It was all super uh, organised and well documented. So we just got absolutely inundated with stuff at the start. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's really a difference, isn't it, with episodic television that uh, to get into multiple seasons, you just have to have that that I guess production workflow uh, up and running. Whereas in features, it's so much harder to get it up and running before, before you've you finished the feature and you're on to the next one. That's right. And I also think the nature of features is that the um, the team gets dragged together and then there's a bit of pre and everybody gets into shooting and, and has to sort of work things out on the go. But I think when you're in season six of a show and the team has been together for as long as they have, they all know exactly what they're doing and, and they have all the kinks ironed out. So it was uh, it was an absolute pleasure. Yeah, and so you've got all this material. Um, in terms of the horse assets, did you like? Uh, I mean, do you have kind of like a library of these things? Are, you, are these specifically thrones horses and stuff? I mean, how does that actually work in terms of just the horses before we get into the propping of them? In terms of you know, extra yeah, well, stuff? because they actually shot some practical horses, we we did have horse assets, but not they weren't actually uh, suited for thrones. Uh, right. The thrones horses are a more stocky breed, so we generated. Uh, a baseline asset for the horse, um, and then we generated variations of that for all the different pelts and, and slight scale changes and things like that. Um, I think I think it'd be fair to say there was almost like six months of of just building assets because there was such a varied number of assets we had to create. Um, yeah, Inika's counting the months on her fingers. I was actually that, curious about that, months. like what the lead time was, because I mean, something like this can't be thrown together at the last second. Nor, nor is there any reason for it to be. But by the same token, no. you know, television seasons uh, aren't, you know, two or three year film projects. I mean, how much kind of time did you get on this? Look, we were um, awarded the, this particular scene in October. Um, and shots weren't getting turned over until December. So that really, that dictated the, the lead up time for us. We knew it was going to be uh, an incredibly big build to get underway. So we just, uh, we had to just, throw as many people at it as we could at the time. When we initially quoted on, on the show, that we, we knew there would be two armies facing off and we'd allowed for uh, for that and for assets for those things. But what we didn't count on was that the armies were actually made out of different factions and there was probably three or four different factional armies on each side, each of which had their own armour, their own 
saddlery, their own horses, their own flags and weapons and, and everything. So, so the, um, the asset count went through the roof. Um, but we still managed to get all, not only, only all of those assets built, but then variations for them through the battle. So they started clean and got more and more bloody and dirty as they went along. Wow. We had textural and, and shader variations for each of those. And there was a lot of work just even getting, uh, uh, our, our pipeline to, to automate that to, you know, randomly assign weaponry to the different massive agents and then also, you know, propagate the different levels of, of dirtiness and, and, uh, and mayhem as, as the battle continued. Well, I was going to work my way out, but but you've already mentioned it. So so the horses are the are the assets. Obviously, you've got to prop them with the right, um, you know, effective. Uh, I don't want to say armor, but you know, uh, the right uh, decals, leather, whatever is um, saddles and stuff that they're doing. But then you've also got CG characters, as in, um, as you said, then massive. So how many actual different types of agents were you dealing with? Uh, in massive, I think we 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 had we did have um, uh, foot soldiers. We also had the horses. We also had the riders on the horses. We had to keep those as separate agents so they could be dislodged and thrown and then go into their own set of behaviours. Um, so I think we kept it pretty much to that. We also had the the combat agent that comes with massive. We used for for some sporadic fighting and some some bits and pieces. Um, we also had this thing called the body pile, which was this ever-mounting, growing mm. pile of, of dead people. And whilst we had LIDAR uh, for all that sort of stuff, and we did have, we actually uh, ZBrushed up a whole bunch of assets for that, we found it really useful to have a whole um, lot of massive agents fighting on top of the pile um, with very low health that all would then die and tumble and slide down and fall naturally. So we could populate the whole battlefield and that body pile with, with essentially dead massive agents. So we'd set those things up overnight and come back in the morning and see where that all ended up, you know. So does the, from the agent's point of view, does it view the massive, sorry, the pile of dead, I shouldn't use the word massive twice, does the massive agents view the large pile of dead people as just different terrain in terms of uh, positioning? That's and right. then a, And then it has like a non-intersection algorithm to stop itself stepping through one of its own dead agents, I presume. Yeah, and look, you know, it was, it was such a complicated looking scene. If a bit of a shield was half popping through a dead guy, you never really noticed. We, we we used it for um, uh, doing that and then and then populating up and down the hills as well. And then we'd just cherry pick out the stuff we didn't want to keep or swap them out for um, partially alive people still kicking or writhing. Uh, you know, so there was a there was an initial placement with that sort of thing, and then there was a lot of um, sort of manual in- intervention. And also we had some continuity to consider too between shots. I mean, in the Battle of Winterfell, there's a lot of kind of atmospheric stuff. But if we can just leave that aside for one second, this kind of like, I'm going to call it misty, kind of smoky depth queuing stuff. Yep. Is the actual um, agents causing any uh, footfall kick up stuff or is it is it feeding into something algorithmically that's causing anything to be um, in the sort of that more regionally close to the agent type dust? No, we, we didn't do any of that for the massive stuff. We, we did do a lot of uh, um, sort of, Kicked up dirt and things off our off our more inspectable characters like the horses and things. We had a had a system we we generated inside of uh, Houdini to do a lot of practical kind of dirt and those sorts of things. Um, but we also did extract a lot of the the data out of Massive and use that to drive smaller particle systems for wide shots, just to so the ground wasn't completely clean underneath them. And we could also um, make their foot hoof prints, you know, strike the mud and leave hoof prints in the mud and churn up the mud as they went. So we had a lot of that sort of stuff, but that wasn't driven through the massive system. That was actually driven afterwards using that data. Because there's a shot I'm just going to reference um, 
it's actually even in your in your making reel, which we'll put a link to, where John has uh, is by himself standing basically as the horses kind of uh, intersect around him, and there is so much yeah. debris in the air that you could, in a different film, call it confetti or um, you know, it's just a massive amount of kicked up uh, dirt, dust, and unfortunately yeah. uh, stuff. And is that that's just all a secondary particle, Sim? That's right. Yeah, we did. We did a lot of stuff coming, uh, being driven by the actual animation. But then we also built a massive library just of dirt kicks. That because we were doing it all, um, comp- comping it all in deep uh, in Nuke, we we could actually just make this massive library of dirt and then just place it in depth as we needed. Um, and I think that's one of the really nice things about this work compared to some of the other battle stuff that you've seen. It did feel muddy and dirty and smoky and haphazard and chaotic in it. And you know we couldn't we couldn't have thrown enough mud up at the lens on that thing. The more you did, the better it looked. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that deep composite pipeline because I was going to ask you about that as well. It seems to be a, a natural for this kind of work because while we've been talking about CG characters and of course agents, you know, um, I'm sure there might be some stunt work, but you know, you've got real actors in there and uh, you need to place them contextually in the same kind of atmosphere. And I imagine they're on some sort of cards, but whatever they are, you're still needing to move stuff around and hold out mats would be a nightmare without a deep comp pass. That's right. I mean, look, that, that's not to say we, we did massive amounts of roto on this show. <laughs> there is more roto on this than I've ever seen on anything we've ever done. We had a whole lot of uh, supplied hand-to-hand combat footage, a lot of vignettes of, of uh, soldiers fighting each other that we could actually leverage. And we, we put a lot of those on cards and, and use those as part of the deep compositing process. And we did did a pre-pass on all of that so that we actually, because it was, it was such a complicated battle sequence, we had to do a lot of kind of blocking animation, then working out where the cards of the vignettes of the fighting would go and then modify the animation and then modify the cards. So there was a lot of back and forth to try and make that work. Um, there was one shot we call the one which is one extended, very long shot of um, John fighting. We're right down at his level and it was very highly orchestrated, but very difficult because, you know, you, you think, okay, we'll bring a horse through now and we'll drop him dead right there. But then 30 seconds later, you're still on the same shot and a live action actor would run through that spot. Or, you know, you'd need to, it would suddenly there'd be a bear area and you want to dress it with some action, but then it wouldn't work later on. Or you, there was a whole bunch of that sort of stuff. So there was, um, the deep was very useful for us to, to sort of lay up a lot of those vignettes and, and put our blocking animation in and start working the, the choreography out from that point. Yeah, it's funny you talk about the choreography because I was looking at it and I was thinking in some bizarre way you seem to be not crossing the line, but how you could kind of keep track of um, things just, I mean, was the edit super locked? Because how, how does somebody like put together this much stuff when you, of course, haven't added so many of the characters and uh, and soldiers into the shot? Yeah, the, the, we, we've got given some pretty robust um, previews. The previews came pretty well um, locked down and we, right. we used that as very much a shooting guide as they did on, on the day and, and whilst it, it, it's mostly like the previous obviously things evolve and deviate and we were charged to put in a horse here and a horse there and some blood and a guy there but then it became more and more and more and, and what we ended up doing was we kind of honoured the previous but then we added and added and added and just kept making it more and more chaotic Now there was the, a the, 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 Sorry, go the edit, the edit, yeah, sorry, the edit for that one shot was pretty locked the whole the whole way through production, except towards the very end they decided to take one of the the cutaway out, yeah, which uh, 
caused a bit of grief for us. Yeah, we ended up with a jump cut with all the horses kind of just jumped. So we, there is actually still a jump cut in there, but I think we've done a pretty good job of hiding it. So there's something for you guys there to, uh, to try and uh, find where the jump, where the horses pop off. Frame, frame <laughs> stepping through frame by frame. It's interesting because <laughs> exactly. there are a couple of establishing shots. I mean, there's an establishing shot fairly early on and then there's an establishing shot obviously once they get encircled. But... But on the whole, it's kind of managing to keep track of what's going on in the action when you are in the action. And that's kind of a, always a hard yeah. task, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was amazingly um, uh, well, well considered, I think, because you're, you're down at John's level, but I don't think there's ever a time where you're, you're not kind of sure what's going on. And I think that's a real testament to the filmmakers. Especially as they're not like, you know, literally, uh, and I'm not being rude here, but they're not like stormtroopers where you've got one lot of guys in white and the other guys sort of clearly aren't. <laughs> Um, there there no, are some helmets and stuff, but otherwise, you know, there's sort of similar tonalities for, for both armies. That's right. And, and there's a certain point where there's that absolute chaos where it doesn't almost matter who's who. But from our point of view, we had to really keep an eye on that sort of stuff because not everybody down here on the shop floor knew, knew the difference between a Mormon and a Karstark or a, you know, a Wildling or, a, you know, so, so you'd, you'd sort of be reviewing all this animation and think, okay, now hang on, let's just double check that we've got the right guy killing the right guy here. <laughs> kind of quite a, quite a full-time job in itself. And then just to add a, a, sort of a, a level of complexity to what you're doing, it wasn't as if all of the characters were the same scale. What, you mean in terms of one one, the, the giant? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was, uh, he was great. Uh, he, he, um, I mean, he was, he was, I think all the time, he was a, a, a live-action element. Um, so we, we, we actually built a, uh, a version of 1-1, but we didn't actually need it. And, and I think we were just covering our bases in case for some reason the perspective wasn't right or from a wide angle we couldn't quite get him in the right orientation. But we managed to actually use um, their live action. And I've got to say that their, um, again, the production were really great on providing us elements where he just fit in. His lighting was perfectly suited and his, his perspective was right. And, he, uh, you know, the, the speed at which he was moving was perfectly you know locked to the background it was just terrific it was really really good to see because because as you would be aware nine times out of ten on a show like that if you were provided a, a giant you, half the battle would be to try and massage him to, to sit into the plate but there were times we just put him in just as a bash company it was almost right straight from the get-go because there was someone on set with a giant pole with a like sort of not a ping pong ball almost like a basketball level thing to give the height for the eye lines but nevertheless if he's running, presumably he's at a different frame rate because otherwise his fall steps would be too quick. That's right. That's right. And, and they built like full-on gradients scale so that if he was running up or downhill, his, his angle you know, of incline was correct and they uh, cranked the camera and they you know, reproduced the camera moves just perfectly. Yeah, that really makes a difference, doesn't it? I mean, it's, uh, it's incredibly uh, upsetting when that isn't the case and uh, so refreshing when it is. <laughs> I know it's uh, it's great. Every time, what you, what you can do is you can put the work where it's meant to be going, and not just in, in fixing a whole bunch of stuff. So, to give the production crew its credit, I think I'm right in saying there were like hundreds of extras, right? I mean, even though, of course, you added. Yes, yeah. They they had. I, I'm trying to think how many horses they had. I think they had like forty or something that they were using, and and they dressed them as one army one day and the other army the other day, and and just. Keep keep using them. We, they shot all three hundred extras. Three hundred extras. Yeah. And we had to create thousands. We had to create three thousand. Yeah. So so and they did shoot a lot of plates. A lot of as you can see our breakdown. They did shoot a lot of you know, different plates with the same 
the same people in different configurations. And then we uh, rotoscoped all those arms and legs and banners and stitched it all together. How complicated it was when uh, Sensei's, uh, you know, Knights of the Veil turned up? Did that add? Because it's like really a third kind of whole component to what you had to deal with. Yes. Yeah, they, they, um, they were good. We, we, they weren't too hard because they were basically just charging over the hill initially. I mean, them ploughing, there's one shot where they plough right through the, um, the, the circle, the yeah. perimeter of the Bolton Army. Um, those, that one shot in itself was, was, was a lot of heavy lifting, getting that right. Um, most of the time the veil were um, pretty much massive agents um, going through our, our horse cycles and, and that was fine. Um, but that one shot there, we, we had to intervene with a lot, of, a lot of hand animation, a lot of very custom sort of work on that. So in those bigger shots, I was curious because what's pivotal, of course, for the agents is that their feet hit the ground, which means that if yep. it's an artificial CG environment, that's fine, right? But w- was the plate photography the ground that they were on or did you replace the ground so it could be a CG ground, hence we absolutely could make sure their feet were at the right point in sort of Z depth, if that makes sense? Yeah, that, that was always a CG ground in there. They were always connecting with it. We, we quite often um, did a very, very close track of the topology of the terrain. Yeah. Uh, in, in that high angle, that circle, that oh, the circle being broken apart shot, yep. that's a fully CG shot except for some of the, some of the crowd in the, in, the, in the middle of the, the circle, a, a plate, a photography. But... Um, yeah, most of the time we replaced it with a with a full CG terrain because we needed to catch all that shadow work and and they're, they're, you know connect them to the landscape and all that. So it was necessary. So um, obviously you guys are on the Battle of Winterfell, but how, how many shots was that section that you guys were on in terms of visual effects work? Uh, the shots we did a hundred and thirty shots all up for the for, for that season of Game of Thrones. Right, but of course um, shot shot. Shot count kind of ignores that, as you were saying earlier, one of those shots was actually quite long. Yes. Yeah, it was yeah, thousands of frames. <laughs> yeah, I think it was a 30-second yeah. shot. Yeah. Right. I think we... the actual battle itself was probably around about 120 shots. Yeah, I always think it's funny, you know, like Moulin Rouge has like, you know, a shot every sort of 23 frames and you had a shot that yeah. ran to thousands of frames. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Yeah, I know. It was uh, it was a challenge, Stephen, just to to composite the thing, you know, just to to keep running that thing through. We worked on it in in components. We we split it into. It's actually comprised of I think four different shots with with kind of careful jump cut sort of wipes in between to link it all together. So from an animation point of view, we could deal with it in in, in smaller chunks. But then we we were stitching it all together in comp. It was definitely it was the first shot that they turned over well ahead of. The uh, turnover schedule, and it was definitely the last shot that went out the door. <laughs> well, you know, Behind. in a sense, you you want that signature shot, don't you? I mean, as much as you don't want it, you you know, at the end of the day, it's uh, great to see your work so uh, so well featured. But let me um, ask this: the the nature of the the material is um, really fairly complex, but of course, it's heavily influenced, as I said, by this grade and this overall kind of haze stuff. Did you nail that mm. final look at your end? Did you then or hand it over in a more neutral uh, grade and have um, with just a, a preview light or something and have it uh, graded extensively elsewhere? We, they graded it back, back at uh, their, their offices, back at production. But we, we were working with the shot lab the whole time. We, we neutral graded the whole thing uh, so that we could keep a consistency to the render and the look of the horses and 
and everything. Um, but we were always comping with that shot light, the show light on um, at all times, uh, so that we we knew how we were sort of placing our levels and and and, and particularly when when we were working with such a lot of atmos and and, and that sort of stuff, we needed to uh, kind of keep consistency. And I think working neutral like that, and not knowing how it's all going to end up, wouldn't have worked for us. Yeah, because I mean, it is. I mean, there's some reds in there, but it's really a pretty bluey green kind of palette. And I imagine readability becomes yep. an issue. Um, you know, just working out how much you can or can't see. Um, and yes. and can you tell me what was the renderer that you used for this? How what was the pipe? What were the tools that you used? Uh, well, um, we we animated obviously in, in Maya, and we uh, we rendered in um, uh, Vero, and we also I think we used a little street light. I think I'm not entirely sure um, for some of the fur renders, but but largely we we, we actually used V-Ray, which was great. We we worked um, uh, we've never used Massive and V-Ray together, and we we did a lot of testing on that, and it worked really quite well. Had the previous work you'd done um, with the horses falling over uh, bicycle domino joke style, was that uh, in the same pipeline or was this like a different pipeline in terms of just the actual rendering and, uh, and look dev? No, that was all the pretty much the same pipeline. I think that the, the testing we needed to do was just for the number of, of assets, just the scale of the thing. You know, so many, uh, even though we had a whole different level of detail for the massive stuff, um, we, we ended up... Uh, uh, really needing to test that. In fact, it's interesting, you, you know, you were talking about the veil uh, arriving. Um, yeah. Two of the very last things we did, there was uh, the veil comes over the hill and Santa is sitting on her horse and there's a shot where she's uh, we're tied on her and, and the veil are passing by. And I think in the photography, they had way too few uh, veil assets and, um, you know, riders and, and horses. So I asked us to populate that up at the, at the 11th hour and we'd only ever made the veil kind of wide you know this low level of detail for um for the massive stuff so it was a real challenge to actually see if they'd hold up in a mid shot like that and they did which sort of goes to show that we we definitely put enough detail into our massive agents you know we didn't sort of skimp on the on the polygon count and we were sort of part of that testing is what what's the level of detail we needed to do for those thousands of creatures to, to sort of so that we could use them like that as well I guess the missing bit of that equation we haven't discussed is it's all very well having a great skeleton and muscle system and stuff, but but nearly all these guys have got either flags or capes. And then, of course, the horses are pivotal in terms of their manes and their tails. What was yeah. the, the sort of missing component in terms of cloth sims and hair sims? Was that just part of the standard pipeline? Yeah, it was. We, we, we had We had sort of three or four guys who just did main simulations and, and, and cloth simulations and reins and, and flags and all that sort of stuff. We did do a, a bunch of flags where we simmed um, behaviours for those guys and populated them into the massive things. We didn't ever drive the... We didn't use massive cloth sims and we, we used our own sims, pre-cached a lot of stuff and then populated the scenes with that. We did drive the manes and tails... Um, for the massive horses, we, we, we drove those with, with sort of a more simplified ribbon sort of system because um, we couldn't obviously do the full hair set on those. Um, but we used uh, um, a Yeti to do a lot of the, the grooming because a lot right. of the wildlings had furry jackets and full heads yeah. of hair as well. That was pretty, pretty wild as well. And, and yeah, everything was just cloth and saddles and... <laughs> You know, trying to get pre-roll going on all the horses and getting the animators to pre-roll everything so we could, you know, sort of get all that stuff caching correctly. It was just, it was, it, there were just, our publishing pipeline just 
the list of assets on any given shop was mind buying. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's you know, it's easy to sort of forget that, but those um, those manes, especially the tails and stuff whipping around, like it really gave us a sense of the horses suddenly changing direction, which is obviously a ghastly yeah. thing because it meant they'd been struck, but. Obviously, you know, it really helped sell that kind of uh, pulling up in the inertia and stuff. And yet, as you say, like there's a lot of hair sims in a, in a sort of a crowd of horses. Yeah, it was actually really gratifying because we, we were um, animating everything without a lot of the hair sims. And as soon as the hair sim stuff went on, it just, like you say, it really added to the impact and to the, to the chaos and, and, and the drama of it all just enormously. It was, uh, it was a terrific day when they started rolling off the pipeline. Now, can I just go the other way? I mean, I guess it's the grade, right? But when I was watching it, not having seen your breakdown reel, of course, and I was thinking about the visual effects, the thing that I thought must have been VFX was those burning kind of crosses because I think the grade has them as a fairly isolated element so they kind of stand out in that they're very kind of orangey, you know, otherwise bleak yeah. uh, thing. And yet they're actually live action or are they, are they sims? I couldn't, it looked like you'd actually shot some elements or is that not the case? No, well there you go. We've done our job. I think two, two of them <laughs> were. Know, two right? of them were. There were there were a couple of practical ones on the day, right. uh, and I think, I think there was probably about eight of them in in the battlefield, and two of them were practical, and the rest were our simulations. Right. It, it, I mean, the, yeah. the grade. Anything that has a, a grade on it, of course, uh, kind of affects your your eye so much, and uh, yeah. And I think, I guess, with the arrows as well, like you can easily lose arrows, as you can on rain and other things when you start grading stuff yeah. up. But, um, yeah, they all seem to play out pretty well. But did you have to play with motion blur or anything on those to keep the oh arrows? Oh, my God. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we had a lot of – we did a lot of work with the with the playing with motion blur settings on the arrows and playing with the gamma of them so that, that they wanted them to be visible but not super visible. And so there's a lot of shots where they're really quite subtle. You almost feel them more than see them, you know, and, and, and just the um, – they were dark arrows with white fletchings and they all had to sort of – uh, be white but not too white, you know. So it, it was a it was a real balancing act. And the arrows, it's funny you should mention them because they, they were almost some of the hardest things to nail because they, they stood out really badly uh, and strobed really badly if they weren't uh, handled correctly. And if you motion blur them too much, they just became these blurry, muddy streaks of nothing. So it was it was a challenge. Look, I'm no archer, but I'm pretty sure on a grey day in the middle of the stuff uh, that's going on that it would actually be quite hard to see a bunch of arrows uh, flying at full pelt. Um, but then again, you know, right. they can't appear out of nowhere or it seems, uh, it seems fake. Well, look, I really want to thank you on behalf of all fans because for several seasons now, I've really wanted to see somebody get rid of uh, Ramsey Bolton. And I, I really, I'm very gratified. <laughs> Bastard. <kind> of, <laughs> um, mind-numbingly. So, you know, I mean, on behalf of fans everywhere, it was really greatly appreciated that you helped uh, bring the bastard down. Um, so thanks for that. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Um, and is this, come uh, not fishing for plot, but I mean, uh, can we hope that you guys will be involved in more projects uh, with Games of Thrones moving forward? Uh, we're definitely talking to them about season seven. So, yes, we hope so. Because it is <laughs> it one of the nice. most iconic uh, TV shows. I mean, you know, really uh, now, of course, the the line between film visual effects, I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this to you, the line between your television effects and feature film effects here is just a really hard line to pick. I mean, we could have easily seen these at, um, in a feature and been happy with them. I honestly don't think there's a line anymore. I think that line's gone. Um, I mean, coming off the back of that work and, and how much 
time and effort we put into it and how much uh, energy and consideration there was in that work. I think the only differentiation between that and feature work is probably the resolution we worked at. You know, I don't think there was any less, uh, you know, care or study or, or, or criticism or you know, internally about the work. So uh, I, I don't think that line exists. And uh, which, of course, brings me to the fact that I wasn't alone in noticing this and that you've been, uh, Glenn, one of those singled out uh, to represent the team uh, in the Outstanding Special Effects, Visual Effects category for the Emmy. So congratulations for that. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, it's, uh, you know, there's a big lot of people here that worked on it. I was just the, the, the guy they pointed at. Just in terms of the team, obviously there are various people represented there for this particular episode, of course, from the different companies. But who were you, Glenn, sort of dealing with back into the production on the creative side of things? Like who, in other words, did you, did you report into? Right. Well, the, the lead visual effects soup was Joe Bauer. We worked directly with him and uh, Steve Colback, who's the executive producer, producer on the show, yeah. uh, of this ex-producer, yeah. So we worked with those two gentlemen directly um, and uh, they took our work forward from that point and uh and champion the cause it's good and uh so i think there are six of you is it or more that are nominated now for the um uh for the uh for the emmy oh for the emmy i think there's more than six actually on the yeah there's more like our 10 i think right right well anyway yeah, it's not just us as a vendor. There's a few other vendors represented yep. there as well, I think. Mm. Absolutely. And and so um, that's uh, in LA. I presume I don't have the date in front of me, though. I should actually know that. But uh, I th- it's the 68th. 18th, uh, I think. 68th Emmy. I know that. 18th. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, right. Yeah, yes. look forward to it. Yes. Well, I'm sure you'll have a really good night. Um, I wish you all the best for uh, walking home with the statue. But and apart from that, I'm sure you just have a really great night. Uh, an Emmy party is a good party on a good, any day, I guess. I'm, I'm looking forward to finding out if that's true. I'll <laughs> give it a red hot go. <laughs> well, again, congratulations. Congratulations on the episode because it really is uh, terrific. And I, I don't, you know, like uh, say it lightly, it really is sort of cinema quality stuff and that, um, that the thought of doing this episodically and, you know, one episode of, of an entire season, it's just an incredible uh, achievement. And so hopefully that sits well for more episodic work coming your way. So congratulations. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. Well, thanks for that, Mike. That was uh, enjoyable. Yes. Not as enjoyable as watching Bolton being eaten by his own dogs, the bastard, but it was definitely enjoyable. <laughs> Spoiler! <laughs> yeah, it's been long enough now. If you haven't seen it yet, you're probably not a big fan. Yeah. Let's talk about where people can find more stuff that we do. Um, I know that you know we do the VFX show and other podcasts. You can check out over on the site. And uh, you've been doing a lot of stuff with Wired. Yeah, Those I mean, we've been well done received. Now, I think we're almost coming to 43, 44 uh, pieces we've done for Wired. So if you, I mean, most people would have known them, I'm sure. They're quite popular. Like, quite frankly, they get millions of views on YouTube. I think like... Yeah, yeah. Several million. impressive, I <laughs> but, know. But um, the thing about them is that it's uh, obviously a slightly different format from the longer in-depth stuff we do, but it does give us a chance to um, to do some things. We, we do it, uh, as I say, media partners with uh, Wired, so it's, uh, you know, it's posted on their, on their site, but um, it's great and we enjoy doing those and certainly we've done them um, for Games of Thrones in the past, as I mentioned at the opener. Uh, but I think the thing that's also nice about it is that while we can't go in depth in a three-minute piece as we can in some of the longer pieces that we do, or as geeky as we can in some of the stuff over at fxphd.com, we certainly can take and credit the work of the visual effects teams that do that work to a wider audience. Yeah. And we always try and make sure that we don't go for the cheap 
gag or the trivialization and you just press the button kind of thing. And I think that's the thing I'm most proud of with the design FX pieces is that we're making sure that the hard work of the people like you guys that are listening to this that do the visual effects work, um, you know, gets recognized to a wider audience, which I think is really, really important. And where can people find those? I know we usually so we post tend, them. Yeah, so whenever we do one, we always post it on our site. So like when we did, I don't know, Independence Day or anything else like that, that'll go in either in the story that we've got on Independence Day or we'll put it as a quick take. And then if you Google uh, Wired Design FX, it'll come up with either the YouTube page, which has like the 40 or 50 we've done, or you'll go to the special Wired page, which um, is their one, which has it kind of by year. And um, some of those we've done uh, have been really just great, apart from which uh, one of the reasons for which is we get sometimes a, a ton of stuff from the VFX companies to, that is exclusive that lets us piece stuff together because I think you know, there aren't that many media outlets that they feel comfortable and not going to misinterpret the material and, and show things uh, incorrectly. And it, you know, it's kind of hard sometimes to translate. It's a bit of a Sid Graph thing, isn't it? Like translating from what is incredibly important and, and great work, but just let's face it, incredibly complicated, down to something that's digestible in a few minutes, but enough so that it's still respectful to the work. So, uh, yeah, I think that's, you know, the thing one has to always keep an eye on. Can you do it justice and not just... And then they added 400 soldiers. Right. You know? No, it's been great. I've enjoyed those. And, you know, like you say, it's a, it's a different challenge, but I think we've done a, you've done a really good job with those. And I mean, the thing is, it's not just us, of course, but most people, uh, for example, if you're a member of the Academy, and I'm a member of the Academy, I get to see a lot of these making of because for this one, for example, for Game of Thrones, when we were voting as members of the Academy, we get these terrifically well-produced short montages of how the thing came together. Um, I got only about one in 10 of those ever sees the light of public day. So, you know, it's the same for the Oscars as it is for the Emmys, but they'll put together these terrific pieces on how they did something. But that in-depth bit is only available if you're an Emmy member. Now, in the case of Game of Thrones, they have put out, and we've got links to it in the show notes for um, Allura's work and others, but as often as not, it's not. And uh, if you've seen this stuff and you get an idea what's going on behind the scenes, and look, you can hear it in this interview that I just played with when I was talking to Glenn. Now, there are things, I just don't know what's real and what's not. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to know. Yeah. And so it's great to be able to have good behind the scenes stuff so that you can actually work out what was real. I mean, it's getting that good these days. That Yeah. yeah the Emmys and the uh, VES are the ones that really let you get that inside look. I yep. mean, a lot of times I spend on the VES um, awards when the, it's time to go voting is just mm-hmm. checking out the behind the scenes on stuff I've been curious about, you know, and it's great to be able to to have access to that because the academy is so strict about their rules about what you can submit and, you know. And, and there are sometimes good reasons for that. For example, there may have been an actor who may not have survived and had to be digitally replaced in a film and for mm-hmm. respect for his family, they're not putting out the making of showing his brothers or whoever standing in, but inside the closed confines of, say, the VS Awards or in, or in this as we're talking today in the Emmys, um, yeah, that's shown to, uh, to the members. But the thing is that's all very well and good, but what if you're not a member of the Emmys? And, you know, right, right. I guess the theory is if you're a member, you kind of get it. But for those people that are listening that want to win Emmys that haven't done them yet and not in the Academy or whatever, you need to, to be able to see the work of others to really appreciate some of the nuances of what they're doing. Anyway. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it's definitely worth checking out. the Check out the YouTube stuff to do with this one for Game of Thrones, which, as I say, was part of their or sort of part of their Emmy submission. But, uh, and also check out the other stuff we put up on uh, Design FX on the, uh, with our media partners, Wide. Yep. And by the way, Wide people, really nice people. 
Oh, good. Oh, yeah. Oh, good. I, I, lo- I just, yeah. yeah. Like, you couldn't be more supportive. That's great. We love those guys. That's great. Well, I think that'll do it for this episode. Um, I don't really have anything else to say. I think uh, just wrap it up and thanks to Mike and I'm Jeff Huser and John Montgomery couldn't be with us today, but he's with us in spirit. (laughs) That'll do it. Uh, See you on the next FX Podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.